Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Jenny Queen on So What Do You Do All Day? I'm speaking with Victoria Spence, who is a holistic funeral director, an end-of-life doula, and a celebrant. Hi, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well, Jenny. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm having a great day. So the question question I generally ask people first is, Mm. so what do you do all day? All day... I work with people at um, very significant times of their lives, really. Mostly people who are coming to the end of their lives or people who love people who are coming to the end of their lives. So I work with people at any point, premature illness, diagnosis, as a counsellor, a guide, a holistic funeral director, a celebrant, all the way through a death and dying process into after-death care, hands-on care and into the ongoing ceremonials and, for some people, ongoing counselling. Okay. So, on your average sort of day, which I'm, I'm guessing there what is no... What does it look like? I was just thinking there's no average day for you, is there? It's never average. I mean, there are certain things that happen more than others, but... I think the nature of the work makes every day sort of an extraordinary privilege. So of course. maybe I can just share with you what this week's been like. Absolutely. I would be I would be yeah? I feel I would feel very lucky to hear it, yes. Okay. Well I, I might just start with um last Friday. I was coming to the end of my day in my premises and I got a text message from someone saying, it was like five o'clock, hello, could you please call me? My daughter's coming to the end of her life and we're at a particular Sydney hospital and I need to talk to you. And I was on a session then with one of my life passage counselling clients and I it, so I saw it out of the corner of my eye and I texted back quickly saying, I'll call you at 5.30, which I did. And so I began a conversation with this woman whose daughter was in the final moments of her life, really, and she'd been living with ovarian cancer for a while. She was in her early 30s, and that hadn't made any choices about next steps. And the end of this young woman's life had come upon everyone a bit more quickly. And so I just had a discussion with her, She was literally in the foyer of the hospital and I was in my office and, you know, it gets dark quickly and so it was sort of, I was watching the light fade and we just talked about all all the things that are the next steps for her in terms of 
the care of her daughter's body after she dies and what's important to the family. There was family, some of them in the hospital, some of them across Australia. We'll talk a little bit more about the COVID maybe later, but this shaped people's choices very particularly at this point in time. So I I spent a good hour or so on the phone to this mum and she was by turns practical and pragmatic and heartbroken and just a very real, intimate, amazing precipice to be at with people. And it always really humbles me. So we finished our conversation. I, I sat down and I said I would send her the practical things like a quote for service and the forms that she wanted and we, so that she could see them overnight and talk to other family members. And we made a plan for me to meet at the hospital on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, which I did. And we sat in these um, COVID spatial restrictions in, in a hospital foyer and we just already had this rapport and intimacy and but not overly familiar, of course, on my part. And we did all the practical forms so that well, when her daughter died, she didn't have to be signing some random form to allow the hospital to release her into our care. So we did all of this and talked about what sort of coffin was important and there was a really distinct choice made by this mum and her her other children. Mm. Very beautiful, sustainable, ply, curved, contemporary coffin because the woman who was dying was an artist and a maker of things and there was a sort of tactility. And because the particular funeral arrangements were that this this young woman was going to not have a funeral yet but wait until the restrictions changed and her family and friends from all over the country and the world would gather at a memorial, She was only really going to be accompanied to the place of her cremation by us. And so the care we gave her was really important. And the picture that the mum had about her travelling in these beautiful clothes they'd chosen and this beautiful coffin was, in effect, the the primary funeral rite at this point. So we, we did all of this. We talked. I looked at photos. I just sat, just let let the time pass knowing that she wanted to get back to her daughter. So I I had everything I needed and they had everything they needed for the next step and I left. And then I got home and then the mum rang and said, my daughter's died and we're going to leave the hospital in about an hour. Could you come back and pick up her clothes? So I did. And we gave each other very big arm out in appropriate distance hugs at this point because in this work you become intimate and acquainted and connected to people very quickly. So it was quite a, you know, it was quite a moment. May I ask, is it difficult not to be able to touch someone in that moment? Yeah. Because I would find that very difficult. It is really difficult. I am... I bow to people, like I make a moment of it. I go, I'm giving you, I'm hugging you right now. I use my language and my open-heartedness to convey that, you know, this this 
mum was great and so we bowed at each other and we opened our arms and we, we just enacted it. Yes. But yes, the, the natural human inclination is to connect at these times physically. What, what else can happen in that actual space now that there's much more physical space between us is, is really interesting and and actually in some of the funerals we've been doing has played out very beautifully um, for how we've been able to connect people. So anyway, I just continued on my day. I, I got everything in place that I needed. I contacted my transfer crew. I hung up this young woman's clothes in, in the cupboard in our funeral home. And, you know, I went back to my weekend, really. Um, and the next day I spoke to this young woman's father who was responsible for settling the account and he wasn't at his daughter's deathbed, he was in another state and he was really talking to me about why certain choices had been made in, in for his daughter's funeral, particularly the coffin, given that for him no one was going to see it. So why would why would they want to spend money on a handcrafted beautiful coffin and and so a lot of what I do every day is really listen to people and hear them in the context that they're speaking in. And of course, as a holistic funeral director, one of the things that people mistrust the most about the funeral industry, even the, the new model people like me, is, is the financial cost of things. Yes. Yeah. So it was really important that I, I, I heard that and that, I really took him through in a very clear and transparent way what each of the costs in front of him was and explained to him that for his daughter's mother, the vision of, of her travelling in a beautiful vessel was a really important thing and, and highly valuable, but that I really understood that it wasn't for him. So we went through a process of me saying, well, here's some other choices and options and, you know, we talked a lot and I said we will really look after your daughter and the fact that no one's going to attend to or be at her cremation doesn't mean no one's going to attend to her and that she's not going to be lovingly cared for by us and driven there by us and of course at this point he started to cry so you know whilst I'm talking about very practical things with people it's always held in this very open relational place at Life Rights, we're trying to lay the best possible foundation for people to, to grieve and to, and to live and to love and to be able to look back on this time, which always costs so much, not hmm. financially always, but emotionally. Such a big thing when someone you love dies. I have found that when you experience, especially in a sudden situation, mm. um, that balancing the practicality and the grief... It's a, it's a, it's yeah. out of body. It's surreal. Um, yeah. I don't know, six months ago, maybe, uh, a loved one died, and I had to figure out the practicalities of burying yeah. her and arranging the funeral, but also try to navigate my grief and my family's grief. And it was just unlike anything else I've done. Um, and it was yeah. just a very strange emotional space. And I think you said a really key thing here, which is often totally invisible 
in end of life and after death for the people experiencing it is out of body. Like part of my practice is very much in, influenced by somatic practice, by embodiment. You know, I've been a an athlete as a kid. I was a swimmer. I was a performer. I was a, a physical person in my life. I've I spent years rolling around on the floor making things before mm. I came into ceremony and this work. I, I, I was an independent artist. And so, so much of what we try and do at Life Science is by holding people in their context and being clear and transparent, we really try and re-embody people because the shock and the adrenaline absolutely catapults everyone out of their bodies and people are travelling at 100 miles an hour, like, you know, in this week, I started to tell you about one of the other things that happened was we took a phone call from someone whose person was very close to the end of their life at home and things were cascading for them out of control. And this poor human being who rang me was literally talking at a thousand miles an hour, mm-hmm. just run ragged by the intensity of these situations that no one's an expert in. We're only ever in them a few times in our lives. And so, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary job to have. And it's much more than a job. You know, this is a, a calling a, I was going to say, it's a calling, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it is a calling. Yeah. Bless you for having that calling. I think sometimes life shapes you in particular ways, yeah. Like I certainly didn't go to the careers guidance counsellor in year 10 and decide this is what I was going to do, it, it, you know. Life shaped me for this, and and sometimes we get it right with families, and sometimes we're not the right fit. You know, I guess in in our in my work, you know, as working with people when when they really need some practical, tangible understanding of what the next steps are, when they're coming to the end of their own life, or someone they love is going to die, and they know that they're going to make funeral arrangements and they're going to survive the death of someone they love. People want and need very different things and and often they're not really sure of what that is until they get it or don't get it. And and so it's always like coming up, you know, can't assume anything really. Every every person that rings, every family, every situation got its own unique dynamics and... um, Absolutely. And and I was thinking you would be dealing with people of different faiths in this particular job. And of course have to be able to accommodate and honor and make comfortable people of all faiths, every belief system. Faith, cultures, different family relationships, intercultural, interfaith, like my particular practice and that of my team, we don't tend to work a lot in the orthodox faith because those communities look after themselves. We work across a very wide cultural range and a lot of intercultural and interfaith and a lot of secular communities um, that come to us. We work with people that really want to look after their dying and their dead themselves and they want very little to do with us and they don't trust funeral directors and Hmm. so so much of what we're doing is I guess trying to make transparent what historically has, has been not visible for people and to give as much agency and self-determination and support, you know, letting people into our mortuary and our funeral home to wash their dead and Mm -hmm. dress their dead and, 
you know, giving over our little ceremony space, our chapel space to families and our venue to, to do what they want as they want. And, yeah. you know, so, so much of our day is really sometimes just backstopping people and troubleshooting and, and clearing the way in terms of what the discourses of the funeral industry say and what's needed and how the medical model works. It's really very much sometimes I feel like um, we're, we're just weaving through a whole lot of different discourses in, in culture to try and create a new path for people to, to go, oh, this is my person's death and, and we did it our way. In the U.S. where I was born, I know that I, mm. I have an aunt who was, uh, she had breast cancer. She passed away about four years ago. But she knew in advance for a long time that she was dying. Yeah. And, and she really engineered the situation. She, she knew what she wanted. And she was allowed, and I know you can't do this here, I think, to be buried on her own farm. And she died in her bed with her grandmother's quilt mm. on her, with her family around her, with her dog on the bed with her. Um, yeah. A friend made her coffin for her. It was lined with her grandmother's quilt. Um, and she was buried under an oak tree on her farm, um, mm. exactly as she wanted it. And it was incredibly um, healing. Yeah, it was beautiful for everyone in mm. the room. And as I much mean, as you're going to. that does happen here, that there are certain regulations in different states that determine where people's bodies can be coffined. But there is a really healthy movement afoot to try and introduce sustainable burials depending upon where you live and how much land you have you can be buried on your land you know your, your, your local council determines that lots of people die at home um, a few of us maybe 10 years ago now imported what's called cooling plate from the Netherlands where lots of people die at home and stay at home and, and these cooling plates mm. allow people to stay at home after they've died and for families to have vigils. That's beautiful. The only, yeah, the only regulation that, that gets in the way of a fully integrated process where people can die at home, stay at home, be coffined at home and then have their funeral is part of the regulations that say people have to be coffined in a registered mortuary. But it's important to know that these sorts of innovations at a policy level, there are, there are people and I'm one of them in, in conversations around how that might change and what that might look like, what it might look like to have natural burial grounds, to have shrouded cremations, shrouded burials. It's a very dynamic, changing and interesting time to be working in life rights and death rights because generally people are less prepared to do it the way it's always been done. You know, there's a, a real movement. Just like people want to know where our food comes from, increasingly people want to know what happens to our dead after they've died yes. and left the hospital or the home. So a lot of my work actually is advocacy, is, is community-driven education and information and finding ways and context to have this conversation so that people begin to know what's possible before they're in it because so much of what makes my day tricky and we really had this experience this week is when people aren't given a context to have conversations about what happens at end of life before they're in it mm. because when you're in it, you're just on a runaway train and 
those emergency calls that come where people are just panicked and freaked out. And of course, you know, in the in the case of a sudden death, that's always how it is. Yes. And that's completely unavoidable. But a lot of my work and my care and my thinking is about how do we have these conversations in our lives. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Yes, so I have another um, loved one who is who has advanced cancer. And oh, so, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all right. It's something that, yeah. I mean, it is part of a whole story, it is, it, you know? Yeah. But in, in the case of that kind of situation I mean and I would think that I, well, you know eventually someday maybe you'll get a call from me um, <laughs> but I would think that it would be when that loved one is moved to palliative you know only when the, yeah. all the options are over and we move to palliative that'd be the Make optimal time to, to talk with you is mm. that the idea yeah I mean th- this week I took a call from a woman whose breast cancer has returned and she called to me two years ago and, you know, she, she had young children then, but they're only two years older and mm. she's pretty sure that it will, this, this recurrence will take her life. And she's still on the next, you know, the, the, the bout of active treatment, but she rang because she just wanted to have somebody that could listen to her, that she didn't have to take emotional responsibility for, that could maybe have some practical advice that could talk to her about what to say to her kids now because mm. they've got more language than they did. Um, you know, so people call at all different points and and those lines between where active care, active treatment moves into palliative, they're never necessarily clear. Yeah, I'm aware of that. And, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, right. It's a shifting. It's a shifting space. I'm aware of that. Yeah. So, one of the other people that we've been working with is the wife of a man who she contacted me March last year. She and her husband. I met with them. He was living with cancer, being treated, and we just met. We had this initial conversation. He was a very practical man, um, by his own admission, and hers. You know gently and lightly on the spectrum and he wanted to get everything sorted. And so it was just really useful and supportive for them to go, yep, this is someone that might be the person that holds the, the ceremony. At that point, he was going to have his body donated to science. So he wasn't going to need a funeral from us with us. But his wife rang me uh, maybe a month or two ago now to say his his things are changing and it's COVID and I've rung up the university and they're not taking 
any body donations right now. And so she's been in contact with me weekly since mm. then and she's very close to the end of his life. I've talked to her, I've talked to his brother, I've talked to his sister-in-law. You know, there's a lot of conversation that's happened. I've listened to his wife um, and whilst there are some key decisions made, really this sense of just building a rapport, I think, is really useful. Yes. And so, yeah, I think everybody calls when they can at different times, but... Yeah, I was just yeah. curious where yeah. in the where in the space. I mean, there is no, there's absolutely no way to stop death from being what it is. It's it's always going to take your breath away uh, and be <laughs> horrifically painful in waves and for a long time. Um, yeah, but that's right. I I I think it's um, very unhealthy to not acknowledge that it it comes for everything living and that um, mm-hmm. and that it is part of a cycle and. I don't know. It's hard for me to describe yeah. on a podcast, but I think what your practice does is a very healthy way. I mean, to acknowledge, yes, this is an inevitability, and to discuss it and to make it open and transparent, and 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 to hopefully mm-hmm. shape your experience with it the way that you want it to be, and yeah. to celebrate it rather than um, draw away from it is is a much healthier attitude. You know, there's so much that we're powerless in when we're accompanying someone we love to the end of their life or we're, we're in our own death. And so this sense of being able to have forged some choices and, and, and feel like there is something one can do here is, I think, because we're meaning-making beings and and nobody likes that feeling of being out of control and... In the death and dying process, you know, you've often got to learn to speak a whole lot of different languages. You've got to learn to speak medical leave, and then the funeral industry has its own language, and and so much of the life rights practice. And you know, we're called life rights because because we work with people at these key and significant times of their life to build rights of passage that support you and that build capacity and resilience and you know, I don't think it's a failure of evolution that we die or that in the in the sort of natural course of most people's lives, we, we will experience significant loss. Mm-hmm. I think that that's how we mature. I think that that's, that's something we, we want to meet with the, the fullness of ourselves. And, you know, for me, lots of the 20th century compartmentalised, professionalised, industrialized a lot of these processes of our own humanity and I'm trying to just wrestle it back you know in my little way with my little team and I thank you, know? you for it I think that it makes it a, a lot easier for a lot of people to acknowledge it and bring it back yeah, in that way I, I hope so I mean certainly it has for me I mean in my personal life that the funerals the processes the the death and dying, my own significant illnesses, and and I've definitely had one. You know, I've been in that diagnostic chair. Mm. I've been that person. The sense of being able to hold what's happening for me and the people I love in the biggest possible frame and not this sense of death as failure, the end of a straight line of life, but as as this intergenerational, cyclical, deeply human 
experience has has enriched me in my life and so yeah and, and really shifted how I understand what's important and and I hope you know it, it brings me to the COVID time really where really the world the world's been stopped in a very particular way and in in the way that death does stops you in your tracks and and then we get an opportunity to think about well how how from here and on what terms and um and that's why getting our funeral rights right are are important because as you say everybody gets their breath taken away and and so often it's been useful in the 20th century with these funeral models that are all about efficient body disposal and less about creation of capacity in, in individuals and communities is to do it all quickly and to get people to the other side. And in truth, it's not what happens on the other side that's important. It's how we get there. So, mm. I think it's just so important for, I mean, I'm also from, from the death that we experienced early in the year, I have a son and he's just had extended grieving from that. And, you know, mm. and it was a good, I mean, like it was a, our loved one was Fijian and it was a, a traditional Fijian uh, funeral, which yeah, is, wow. a, Great. I know it's a beautiful, mm. beautiful multi-day experience. Um, yep. As much as you can. That's a really great way to go through yeah. it all. And it's even a prescribed sort of time frame in a way where you, you know, you go back after a certain number of days and you have certain rituals to help you. And that was great. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, he's nine. And that was sort of he a grandparent figure for him. So oh, I know. But, you know, it's good to have it just it's just to me, it's very good to acknowledge. And and I think it's wonderful that you're helping people do that. And I really appreciate it. So thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> I was eager thank to have you. this conversation. Yeah. Um, thank you. So great. How do you refill your cup? Yeah, well, you know, I, I have an army of people behind me and practices. Um, I really, I mean, the, the life rights practice is, is sort of modelled on the understandings of rites of passage, which is rites of separation or, you know, completion, these places of liminality, so rites of transition and transformation and, and rites of reincorporation. So I don't have very hard and fast work persona and not work persona. Death comes at any time, at any time of the day or night. And, you know, I, I try and keep Sundays free, um, mm. but it's not always possible. I work very intimately with when I walk in to a family or a work situation or I walk into my funeral premises. And when I walk in, I, I leave certain things at the door and I'm really present and then when I leave, I really leave. And sometimes, you know, I walk out of families' homes and, and I just drive home in the car and I play certain music and I, I talk to myself or I cry or in summer I keep my swimmers in the car and I often just throw myself into the water. Yeah. I have my own, like I have a supervisor that I meet, like professionally, so a clinical supervisor. I have my own personal person that I speak to, you know, every week. When it's not COVID, I have acupuncture, I have massage, 
I have a very needy dog that I have to walk every day. <laughs> yeah, I have one of those. You know, I live in a very beautiful part of Sydney with a little river. I really just, I have had to build up a lot of muscles to know how to regulate myself, yeah. you know, because I often end up as speedy. Like if I'm one person, and I, often now I work in a team, so there's often two of us that, that work with families, but if if I'm one person and I'm walking into a family of six or seven people that have just been at the coroner's to look at the body of the person they love that's died suddenly, then we're no match for the eight, those bodies that are just, you know, tripping. Yeah. So I, I sort of ride the highs and lows really and I'm a mum, I'm a single mum, I'm a 19-year-old daughter. Mm. I really love the grounding practices of parenting. They and are so very grounding. Yeah, this is very grounding. And, you know, there there was probably one of the moments where things were really, really close for me was when earlier this year, my daughter had just returned from her gap year adventure. I'd literally, the, the day before, I'd got up early, I turned my phone off that day because I was going to the airport to pick her up and I'd given her the day and there was a missed call. And the next day, you know, the very next morning, I got a call from a dad who said, I rang you yesterday and I said, oh, okay, you didn't leave a message, that was you. And he said, yeah, my 19-year-old daughter was on her gap year and she had a sore leg and... Three months after the sore leg on her gap here, she's now at home with us and she will die of a very rare and aggressive cancer. And we've been given your number by someone else whose daughter you looked after. Oh, God. And, and it was like a flood hit me. And, you know, I have not been in that situation since I probably began this work. And I talked to this lovely man about his daughter and his heartbreak was just, his voice was breaking and I finished my conversation and we made the time for me to come over and I got off the phone and I lost it. Like I was just in sobs and I rang up one of my other colleagues that we've we've developed our own practices over the last sort of 15 years together and we often co-counsel each other and there's been many times where, you know, I picked up the phone to her in heaving sobs and this was my time and and I just had to I just had to feel it and so often people think that good professional practice is this emotional distance but actually in this work it's the opposite it's having the capacity to do the emotional labor mm. and to come out the other end and you know and I did I did puddle up and spoon my daughter oh to, goodness yes Solidly, you know, I did sob and so, you know, I just do the best I can because what I'm trying to do is keep my humanness and my my emotional presence. It sounds like you're you're you've got that there though. I can hear it. Yeah. You've got it. I've, so yeah, I've got it. That's but, wonderful. You know, it, it's yeah. I, I just do whatever self care I can, and at times, you know, I've been burnt out by this work. I've been bowled over by it. I've got things wrong. I've made mistakes. It's it's human, yeah. and I've learnt from my mistakes. And possibly, mm. what equips me to be that person is that I'm not perfect, and I can really 
relate to other people's cracks because I'm I'm really across my own. You have to be deeply in touch with your own humanity, your own humanness, in order to be able to do the work you do, I would think. Yeah, and I think your own vulnerability. I mean, I sort of thought, I mean, I'm in my 50s now, and, and I sort of, until I got into my 50s, I sort of thought that as you matured, you sort of got less vulnerable. You sort of, you know, showed up all those bits of you. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that for me, it's sort of been the opposite. I've had the opposite got, experiences. I've gotten older yeah, too, just softer and, and softer fallible. and softer. Yeah, and more fallible and more vulnerable. And, you know, so that the vulnerability of whatever I felt about me in my 20s, Possibly amplified, but differently, and I'm more used to it. And it's just a fascinating um, practice because it undoes, you know, like I work with people who are undone by these events mm. and by these experiences, and I understand the absolute necessity of that. And mm. um, and and I guess life tries to build a context in which that's okay, and the the choices we support people to make. Or, you know, the best ones for them are a way of putting themselves, weaving themselves back together in a new way from allowing themselves to be fully undone. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Well, thank you so much Thanks. for talking with me <laughs> this evening. And I really Total appreciate pleasure. your openness. Um, it's been a great conversation. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.